This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint, you deserve the best security. Two very different perspectives on Israel's government and what it's doing. One from a defender of the judicial overhaul, and then a sharp-eyed observer of one of the big names in the Netanyahu team. It's Unholy. I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And I'm Unique Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. Unholy, two Jews on the news from Keshet Podcast. Jonathan, we actually have a jam-packed show today. We're doing something for the first time, which is two interviewees. Two guests on our show. It's like two Jews, two guests. We've got it all. (laughs) It's a double feature. And actually, when you think about it, it's we're two months, almost two months into the Netanyahu government. So we're talking about the two main issues, uh, which are the judicial overhaul and really the, let's say, far right, specifically Itamar Ben-Gvir as Minister of National Security. So I think that that will be covered with both our interviewees. I will just tell you that I'm sitting here among three small children. Let's hope that they don't interfere and ask questions about the judicial overhaul because Israel, again, yet again, is seeing a strike today. I think I, I, I quoted this tweet to you before, that Israel has four seasons, which is elections, war, strike, and summer. <laughs> Sometimes they all happen at the same time. So today is strike because the uh, municipalities are um, protesting their uh, the government's decision to slash their budget. That's, there's that going on too. It has nothing to do with the protests of the judicial against the judicial overhaul. So today we got a bonus strike, and thus children are at home everywhere across uh, Israel. Yeah, we so, did talk actually, didn't we, about whether we should cover the strikes? And I think I said no, partly because they just happen so often. <laughs> it's it's becoming you know dog bites man rather than man bites dog to apply the traditional journalistic yardstick. So it's not really meeting the news threshold. But yeah, this we just like you say, two months, two perspectives, two different big stories. So we, we've got two really strong I- interviewees. I think two really strong guests with very different perspectives. And partly responding, actually, to what listeners have been saying, that we've had a lot of people very critical of the judicial overhaul on the podcast over recent weeks. And people have said, absolutely rightly, look, we'd love to hear what the case that the, those people who are advocates of these changes w- would make. And we've got someone really well-placed to do that, really involved in the thinking behind the judicial reform and how it is grounded, as they see it, in sort of constitutional theory and so on. And um, I think, you know, it's a very illuminating conversation on what exactly is driving the people who are really behind this. Jonathan Green is the executive director of the Israel Law and Liberty Forum. He's a vocal proponent of the judicial reform. And after hearing more than a few opponents, we really wanted to hear his views today. Jonathan, thank you for talking to us. Thank you for having me. Well, it's going to be a Jonathan, Jonathan, and Yonit conversation. It's going to be quite interesting, I think. Let's first focus on what passed in the Israeli parliament's first reading of the vote on Monday. Two amendments, essentially. One is the coalition will have complete control over the Judicial Selection Committee. The second is that the high court cannot review basic laws. Now, I'm going to get to the issue, and we will get to the issue of judicial review uh, later in our conversation. Mm-hmm. But I really want you to explain to me, if I may, why does the coalition need 100% control over the appointment of judges, all judges, in all instances of courts in Israel? Well, thank you, Anit, and thank you, uh, Jonathan, again, uh, both for having me here. Yeah, absolutely, it's a good question. I think the first stage before the question of uh, coalition control of the committee or not is a sort of basic premise of political control of judicial nominations. And it's probably, you know, some might argue is a, a more fundamental change that's being made here from the get-go in terms of having a higher degree of political control in general of uh, judicial uh, appointments in Israel. Now, Israel is an anomaly in many senses, certainly since uh, uh, the 1995 judicial uh, or constitutional revolution, since uh, uh, the court uh, decided that Israel had a constitution and and that it could invalidate legislation based on this uh, so-called constitution. Israel was an anomaly in the sense that in almost every country in the world with judicial review of legislation, there was a sort of balancing, one of the balancing mechanisms was a manifestly political judicial appointments process, meaning this is the norm throughout the democratic world that goes together hand in hand with any kind of 
legislative override powers, meaning when a court has a power to strike down legislation, there's an understanding, a sort of, and, and, and it's on the table, uh, an understanding that this is an inherently political function, not only legal or professional. You can't couch it only in sort of professional legal uh, terms. And therefore, it's, it's, it's always had a, a political, or again, in most democratic countries, has a clearly political side or uh, the emphasis is political. And this is, I think, the first part of what is trying to be changed here in Israel. And then there's the whole question of the judicial veto, which is, which is something quite different. In Can I just of, jump in yeah. there? I, I, I'm sitting here in London in one of the countries I th- presume you think is part of the Democratic Absolutely. And judges here make intensely political decisions, including judicial review decisions. The most famous one probably is from 2019, where the Supreme the Court case. told, well, it told Boris Johnson he couldn't prorogue Parliament. He couldn't suspend Parliament because Parliament was not uh, giving him what he wanted. And they just told him his decision was was void and overturned it. There was, there was no political, or your phrase, manifestly political Mm -hmm. component in their selection. They're appointed by an independent body, the Judicial Appointments Commission, statutorily, in law, independent. The head of the commission is appointed by the government. That's true. But Mm -hmm. once they do their work, it is an independent body made up mainly of jurists and judges and so on. And and I've, I've noticed advocates for change often make these sorts of comparisons. And yet, I don't know whether they really hold up. Well, they they certainly do hold up, and I think England is a wonderful example because England is one of those few countries where, indeed, and this this is absolutely consistent with what I'm saying, there is no, and again, I'm not saying in any country where a court makes political decisions of any kind, there is a political nominations, you know, political appointments process. But again, in any country, again, most countries, the vast majority of countries, where the courts have power to strike down primary legislation, there you have an overtly political process. This is the vast majority of European countries. It's called the, the Kelsenian constitutional model. You have what's called a constitutional court, and that, that, that court has sole power of striking down legislation. And those judges are appointed in a, again, in a, a sort of clearly, blatantly, on-the-table political process, recognizing the need for sort of accountable, uh, you know, political, not quite accountability, but uh, a democratic legitimacy for these decisions. And the UK is a great example because the UK, after everything is said and done, the foundational principle, the foundational constitutional principle in the UK is of parliamentary sovereignty. And parliament gets its way and has the last word. You know, uh, there might be some back and forth and some tit for tat, but ultimately parliament has the last word on any fundamental issue of whether it's uh, of policy, of uh, values, of rights, etc. So yes, I mean, the UK is an outlier in this sense. Yes, but this is what's bothering me uh, about what you're saying, Anathan, because obviously every country has its checks and balances. In Israel, on the other hand, you said that Israel is an anomaly, and I, 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 I wholeheartedly agree. Israel is an anomaly because it doesn't really have a constitution. It's an anomaly because the government always has or almost always has a majority in the legislator because it's a coalition government. It's an anomaly because you can change, amend any basic law with a simple majority. And I wonder then what protects, and of course there are no two houses of parliament, etc. What protects, besides judicial review, basic rights? That's a wonderful question. And if you'll allow me, I'll sure. sort of break it down into two questions because I want to I want to address the premise before the question itself, mm-hmm. the, press, the premise of Israel being an outlier is uh, true in one sense, but then the question is sort of how do you solve that? So, for example, you said, you know, Israel doesn't have two legislative chambers, correct? Mm-hmm. And Israel does not have a constitution. However, the solution to that, and this is essentially what the court did since 1995 and, and also earlier, the solution to that is not to pretend that Israel has a constitution and then continue striking down legislation and, and, and doing many other things as if Israel had a constitution. This is the this is sort of the original sin of mm-hmm. the Israeli Supreme Court, one which is, but you know, this is not, not of a the new Supreme Court then. Crisis. It's of the Knesset who wrote these basic laws and and basically the basic law of human dignity and liberty, which when it wrote this law in 1992 assumed that this will be the quasi constitution, a part of it, the Bill of Rights. It's it's That's, the Knesset um, that did I, it, not not the Supreme Court. That, you know, that's that's certainly one side of the argument. This is an ongoing constitutional crisis since mm-hmm. 1995. You know, it can it can certainly be said that until 1995, uh, courts generally did not strike down legislation. And it was clear to them that they did not have that power, except for a very uh, a handful of sort of procedural exceptions. Let's put it this way. At the very least, that's a heated debate in Israeli constitutional law since 1995, mm-hmm. whether the Knesset actually granted any kind of constitutional mm-hmm. power to the courts. And this is, you know, something else that I've spoken on. But again, I think the question of Israel being an outlier is key here for two reasons. 
One is that Israel was not an outlier until the 1990s in the sense that it had a well-ordered and established constitutional system called Westminster-style parliamentary democracy. It might have been a key feature of which was parliamentary sovereignty unless, unless you actually have a constitution, unless not, not the judicially created quasi-constitution that you have in Israel, but a constitution as is accepted and done throughout most of the democratic world when the people actually deliberately expressly, and of course, uh, um, uh, representing a wide consensus, actually adopt consciously uh, what we usually regard as a constitution, this sort of comprehensive, integral legal mm -hmm. document, which we call a constitution. That's the exception from the theoretical sense to parliamentary sovereignty. And we had this system. And what happened was that the court, sometimes gradually and sometimes very, very quickly, destabilized this whole concept and kept adopting features from other systems of the government or, or sort of new features sort of out of whole cloth, which, which were in some points invented or some points uh, imported. And that is what makes us an outlier. And I'm saying this in the sense that, yes, maybe they're, you know, up to the 80s or 90s, there certainly were things that Israel should have fixed or and we still ought to fix. One is our electorate and voting system. There's just a way, you know, I think there are deep flaws in the way we, we have our elections and the way we appoint representatives. One is chambers. Certainly, I think Israel would be better off with the two chambers in the legislature. And one is, of course, constitution. I'm, I'm in favor of a written constitution enshrining fundamental rights with judicial enforcement and oversight of government, et cetera. But we don't have those things. And the original sin of, of, of the Supreme Court is to pretend that we do. And then, uh, and of course, there's no way to legitimate that. That's a shortcut that ends up eroding many, many of the fundamental institutions in Israel. So that, that was okay. just about the premise. And, and I'll say just one more word about that, John. Sure, sure, sure. One is that um, this argument about the coalition or the sort of the, the Knesset being weak as opposed to the, uh, the government, I think, doesn't really hold water. In Westminster-style parliamentary democracy, there is always a large overlap between the government or the cabinet, which is appointed by the legislature and the legislative majority. Of course, this is the standard. And actually, I think in the sort of academic uh, literature and in research, actually, the Israeli government is considered fairly weak, fairly weak compared to the Knesset when compared to other countries and other systems. Sorry, yeah. go ahead, John. I mean, no, no, it's fine. I mean, the danger is that we develop into a sort of constitution, comparative constitutional theory seminar <laughs> between us, which, you know, the three of us are gripped by, but, we, you know, we should think of those people listening. Um, yes. Nevertheless, because you mentioned Apologies, the Westminster listeners. model. Apologies, <laughs> No, no, I mean, I, I, look, I can laugh it up. The, 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 uh, speaking as you've mentioned the Westminster model, and, and I, as I'm talking to you now, I'm, you know, a 10-minute underground tube ride from Westminster. So mm -hmm. the, the first thing about that is that even people here think, there is a problem with that system because it concentrates so much power, but at least there are some checks on it under, under our system. Two of them would be that Parliament, which is sovereign, absolutely, as you say, in our system, has two chambers, not just one. And the government of the day always, by definition, has command of the one chamber, the House of Commons, but it doesn't control a much more independent, much more difficult, much more unruly second chamber, the House of Lords. Obviously, problems of its own in terms of how it's made up, but there's a second one. And on top of that, there is a judiciary which has wide latitude and over whose members the government of the day does not have control. So we go back to Yonit's question, which is about this point about a government having control. You're saying, let's take the Westminster model, which is how Israel should always have been, and shear off it, strip away from it the two or three checks and balances that exist in the Westminster model and have sole control in the hands of the prime minister of the day. So even the fairly modest checks and balances, which a reformer like me in Britain thinks we should expand and have more of, you're saying those few restraints and breaks that the UK model has, let's get rid of those and have what even a British conservative Pierre, Lord Hailsham, called an elective dictatorship. That's how he described Britain, the British system, which you want to make even more concentrated in power. So I think, you know, we it's a difficult business, this cherry-picking models. But if we're going with that UK one, and you say that that was Israel's original, uh, you know, right. uh, a close approximation. model, it's it's a big, big problem to suggest going becoming sort of more true to that and stripping away the one or two restraints that are in that system in the UK and having essentially untrammeled prime minister for the prime uh, for untrammeled power for the prime minister of the day um well thank you Jonathan and Yonid, I know I, I actually do owe you an answer on the question of uh, who will protect uh, 
fundamental right. So I'm actually not not forgetting that. Well, Jonathan, for, I'll just remind you that, of course, we're not stripping away some of these mechanisms. They would just never existed like the Second House of Parliament. But of course, the, the point is taken. I think that these are all desirable features for the Israeli constitutional system. And Israel is a complicated place. It's a, it's a young country. And they had a semi-constitutional project for years called Basic Laws, where it was sort of agreed at the founding of the state that Israel could not arrive at what they thought was a sort of sufficient constitution. And they agreed to sort of write a draft constitution, really to write piecemeal these different sections, which never had any kind of constitutional status or standing, but they were sort of agreed that they were sort of marked with the little asterisks and they were called basic law. And this essentially were to signify that this is either an important piece of legislation or that this, you know, it's slated for some future, some future constitution. What happened in 1995 is that this screeched to a halt. There was an average, I think it was every four years since the founding of the state, there was a new basic law legislated. Then from 1995, from the Constitutional Revolution, that stopped for 20 years until you had the next one. And one of the reasons for this is because this whole, I mean, this is all admirable and desirable, all the things that you're suggesting, which is Mm -hmm. that these, these these should be features of the Israeli democratic government, but you can't just magic them into being and you can't just grant an unelected, unaccountable, separate power, not just delegating, but alienating decision-making power to an unelected, unaccountable body, not not just unelected, unaccountable, but without the legitimacy, remember, without the crutches of legitimacy that courts like these have, which is a written constitution and a political appointments process. And that's what they lean on when they make these kind of rulings to strike down legislation or whatever it is. You can't just ignore the fact that we don't have a constitution and then grant all that power or essentially have a court grant itself that power. I, I, uh, hang on, you need to. Yeah, I, know, sure. I know Jonathan's making a face, but yeah, I want to... I'm so making a face, but yes. I want to hear it's, your needs. It's, it's his face. I'm just saying. It's just his face. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding about that. Um, so, no, I do want to... Because we're going to go back to the whole issue of who protects John rights. Is, Jonathan is right. I'll, I'll bring us back to Israel, but yes, and, go ahead. And, and the whole issue of who protects rights, I think, is, is crucial here. But I'll tell you what my issue is with what you're saying. Because what you're generally saying, if I, if I can paraphrase, is, is look, this is a quest for a balance of power, right? The balance of power has been skewed. The court has a little bit too much power. The legislature has too little. We need to, you know, it's a quest for rebalancing it. And I would argue that it seems like a quest for absolute power. Because again, if the coalition wants 100% of the appointments of judges, if the coalition does not even have a long-standing debate with judicial experts, but just steamrolling this legislation for weeks. If the coalition wants to basically prevent in any way possible for the Supreme Court to have any judicial review, it looks like, and of course we should add, we haven't mentioned in this conversation thus far, the prime minister is standing trial, right, for three cases. It looks like a quest for absolute power, not a rebalance of power. That's, I think, what is concerning many Israelis. I certainly do understand that uh, perspective, but I think it doesn't reflect not not just the political reality, but the legal reality in Israel or the or the reform itself. Mm-hmm. One is about you know uh, when talking about absolute power, and and this also relates to the inherent limitations on government power in Israel. If there's anything that the last few years have shown us is that a majority of 61 members of Knesset find it very hard to get anything done, indeed, and this idea that any majority or any slim majority in Knesset will then be able to trample fundamental rights or to significantly harm minorities or whatever it is, the very structure of the Israeli system of government, including the coalition structure, which means that you have all these different parties. Of course, in Israel, unlike in the UK or elsewhere, uh, we've never had a single party dominate the entire coalition. This has never happened in, in Israel's history. And every single government is always built on this coalition, which is sort of pulling the government in many different directions with uh, sort of independent-minded and independently sort of empowered legislators who take things in different directions. So that's, that's one point. Another point is that I don't agree with the characterization of absolute power, but certainly there is no question that the reform in its many sides gives greater power to the legislature and to the elected branches. And there's, there's no question about that. And that's, that's its, you know, one, one of its stated goals. But this power is indeed 
sort of shared by both sides. And if anything, anything that the last few years have shown us is that the electorate in Israel doesn't swing one way or another clearly. And in a few years, we may well have a, a left-wing government or a center-left government or a center-right government or whatever it is. And each of these governments will actually be able to sort of pull it in their direction. This relates both to judicial nominations or judicial appointments. It's not that all the judges are being fired today and the government is then appointing you know 50 new judges. It's every consecutive government will have some say in in uh, coalition uh, the current in, in coalition will have 100 percent of the appointees and that's almost 100 judges a year district court magistrate court supreme that's, court that, that's, so that's a whole point, lot of which judges I think this relates yeah yeah I, I i agree of course and i think i am in favor of there being differentiation in terms of the way that uh lay judges or the way that uh, uh other the other court judges are appointed versus the sort of constitutionally vested the uh, judges with, who can strike down laws which is uh, currently, everybody, I should note, but per the reform, should be only the Supreme Court uh, if if it actually uh, uh, goes their way. So again, I think that you know the most important answer to everything that you're saying is that the proper, the most important mechanism for a check on power in any democracy is the public, is the public itself, is the electorate, is the desire to be reelected, etc. And there's, I think, once again, this is shared by many different critiques of the reform or many different critiques, a sort of lack of faith in the political process and in, and in politicians, who I have great respect for on all sides. Mm-hmm. Um, is there sort of utter disregard for public opinion, their utter disregard for what the electorate might say, their utter disregard for the judiciary, etc., uh, whatever it is. And again, the the coalition having, let's say, a majority in the Judicial Appointments Commission doesn't mean that the coalition every single time will simply unilaterally appoint any judge that they see fit. They most likely will work in full cooperation with the judges, uh, but this will be a mutual cooperation where the but they balance don't need of power to. is... They don't need th- to. This is... Th- this is true. I mean, in a sense, what you're saying is it seems that you're arguing very strongly against the veto power currently enjoyed by the judges in the uh, in the commission. The veto by uh, the judges who, and who, by the politicians. They both have an equilibrium. Absolutely. You can't pass Let, a Supreme Court judge with only judges deciding. That's for sure. I, I'll make a note on that in a second. But I think this is, you know, this is a fair critique of the power of a veto in, in, in this kind of system. But I think the broader point of public oversight of the democratically accountable and elected representatives is the most important point in all of this. I will make it one note about the veto power because I know this comes up a lot and this is sort of a common point made. Yes, currently the politicians and the judges have a sort of mutual veto power in the Judicial Commission. However, A, there is much stronger justification for the elected representatives to have veto power and not the judges, meaning just mm-hmm. pretending that they both have the same power, and that's okay, is, is I think not really consistent with the des- democratic principles of the very legitimacy of these judges being appointed and making these sort of value-based decisions on, on principles and on policy, etc. But more importantly, luckily for the judges, they can wait it out. And they have a very different power dynamic within the Judicial Selections Committee. And we've seen this happen. We've seen this happen with the government's efforts to appoint uh, Professor Neely Cohen, who was an outstanding jurist, and it with Professor uh, Ruth Gavison. And of course, the judges know that they have 10 or 15 or 30 years, and all they have to do is to wait out the next minister of justice or the next government that they can appoint whoever they want, You know, hopefully with the next more agreeable minister of justice. So I think even this idea that there is this balance of power in terms of veto power between the government, even today, and, and, and the judges on the Judicial Com- Selections Committee is not, is not quite true. You, you are setting a lot of store by public opinion, the electorate, as the ultimate check, as you put it. Here's the worry people have, and, I, and I'm one of them. If the, the logic of this continues, you would have a situation where, for example, and there are people in the Knesset calling for this now, there is a decision to say Arab parties should not stand, should not be allowed to stand. This is a Jewish state. There shouldn't be Arab parties. At the moment, that would go to an elections commission and ultimately to a Supreme Court, who every time would throw that out as fundamentally contradictory. Over time, you would have a situation where through the gradual attrition and appointments where politicians get to decide them, eventually, before long, you will have a Supreme Court in the image of a government of the day that could say, right, we are banning not just the Arab parties, parties we decide are not patriotic. So we've decided that the Israeli Labour Party is not a patriotic party, they're banned, it goes to the Supreme Court, which is all, say, Netanyahu appointees over time, we understand, and they say they can't stand. And therefore, suddenly, you don't have free democratic elections anymore. And the reason why people who are opposed to these reforms keep on mentioning 
Erdogan's Turkey and Viktor Orban's Hungary is this is precisely what happened. These are places that had democratic systems where the leaders, Orban would say, don't worry, we'll have elections. If people don't like it, they can vote against it. Until they couldn't, until the elections aren't really free. It could be about, you know, election broadcasts. We decide the opposition have 10 minutes, the government have an hour and a half. There'll be no body left, no judges left to in, enforce that. So you're saying the ultimate check on this will be the public, except these reforms will rob, ultimately, the public of any power to stop them. That's why there are hundreds of thousands of people in the streets every day. And I know that in the seminar room and in the constitutional textbooks, this model makes great sense to you. But there are hundreds of thousands of people on the streets and people all over the world appalled by these proposals for the reason I've just explained. Well, that's a wonderful point. Jonathan, I think there's there's this specific issue of, of our parties, which I'll address, and there's the sort of broader issues of right who's who's to stop the public or the you know the uh, the majority doing as they please and stripping away sort of fundamental democratic mechanisms and rights. It's interesting you should say that because I'm not familiar with any suggestions to ban Arab parties from running. And more yes. importantly, I think, is that as far as I know, in the coalition agreements, I don't think it was actually passed into law, but in coalition agreements, one of the things that were agreed is that they would remove some of the statutory you know, conditions that allow theoretically the banning of parties. Uh, you need to correct me exactly. There is a wrong, suggestion. Was there some uh, talk of removing? Yes, but there was a removing, suggestion by, you know, I think, religious right. Zionism that says that it would make it, or, or it's my that it would make it easier to the, disqualify Arab parties. That uh, the, is definitely the reasons, uh, on the part on the, the table. The reasons be, look, from a, let's, you know, let's dig into the details for one second. In mm -hmm. Israel, there are, there is a law, which I think is objectionable, but also mm -hmm. has its justifications. There is a law which limits the ability of parties to participate uh, in elections. It's uh, been used fairly rarely, if ever. And the three sort of conditions upon which somebody can, theori can theoretically decide such a thing would be negating Israel's Jewish and democratic character, mm -hmm. being you know Supporting fundamentally terror. or intrinsically racist. And then, right, the third is being sort of overtly supportive of terrorism or, or violent or, you know, overthrowing the state or whatever it is. So first of all, as far as I know, the current coalition agreements include doing away with the first two, Mm -hmm. Which, again, regardless of the reasons or the impetus or whatever it is, I'm just saying this to Jonathan, it seems that the move is towards less limitations on political parties running and not more limitations. You know, we, we can go on because this is such an interesting conversation, but I do want to maybe end on this, which is to ask, I mean, you're obviously an ideologue who believes in this, in this reform and I believe in your candor. I wonder if you're at all bothered by the fact that the w person who is spearheading this whole reform is someone who's indicted and on trial. Does that matter at all to you? And is there anything out of this? Because we just mentioned a few parts of this huge overhaul, right? It's also uh, trying to weaken the AG and, and having politicizing the legal advisors and in, in government ministers. This is, goes on and on and on. Is there any part of this reform that you disagree with, that you don't like, the way that it's being steamrolled, or you completely, you're on board with, with all of it? Um, look, I think the nature of any major political initiative, any major legislative agenda, is that I don't think, except for the actual person authoring it, you won't find any single person in the electorate who says, yes, I will sign on every single part of this or every single section of every single law. I'm, I'm sure I have my qualms or my doubts about this part or that part or, or certain mm -hmm. things. I will say that, uh, you know, generally I'm very comfortable, as is a very large part of the Israeli electorate. Mm -hmm. I'm very comfortable with most of the reforms. I think there are some things missing, patently missing the reforms. Some of it has to do with criminal law and the way criminals or suspects are treated in this country, including, uh, uh, you know, a criminal defendant rights and other issues, which I think are, are missing and need to be sort of uh, revamped as part of a broader legal reform in Israel. But I want to address your your first question, which is really not just about general discomfort, but about the prime minister and Netanyahu being indicted. So I'll make two points about this. One is that for the past 20 years, or more actually, past 27 years, I guess, every single prime minister in Israel, with one very short exception, has been under some kind of criminal investigation, some have been ultimately indicted, et cetera. And as you, Professor Yoav Dutan says, is, what, is, is one of Israel's sort of leading administrative law experts, he says, either Israel is uniquely corrupt, which I don't think is the case, and I think is, uh, international rankings on this issue sort of confirms that. I don't think Israel is a sort of bakshish type of country where everybody is, is corrupt. Either Israel is uniquely corrupt, or you have something else going on here. You have a, a separate problem. And it's true that if you're willing to say that, if you're willing to say 
well, we can't have or there's a problem with any kind of judicial reform as long as whether it's the prime minister or the minister of justice or other uh, ministers are under investigation or indicted for crimes or whatever it is. If you're going to say that whenever that happens, we have a problem with passing this kind of legislation, that what you're really doing is you're giving an incentive for the system at large to always maintain that situation. You're saying, if you want to prevent any kind of legal reform in Israel, then just make sure that the top echelons of politics are just always under some, are always embroiled in some kind of criminal controversy. And this isn't conspiratorial kind of anyway. Who's is, going to say that sounds like deep no, state No, conspiracy. not in the slightest. Okay. I think, but that's my point. I think not, this is the fundamental... Uh, I mean, this goes back also, you know, speaking of, you know, textbook or, or, or sort of seminar or whatever, this is this go back into basic theories of the sort of different incentive structures for uh, different institutions in a democratic regime. And what happens when you're giving essentially you're granting a power to one institution, you're saying, I'm giving you the power to veto judicial mm-hmm. or legal change as long as you maintain a status of criminal proceedings against the top politicians. And that's essentially the system that we have right now in Israel, if you're going to accept that argument. There are other things besides, and I think there's the two more points I'm going to say them in one sentence, which is A, I don't think there's any any effect of the current reform on Netanyahu's trial. I don't think it's a plausible argument. I have not seen one, one actual argument which draws the line on a realistic basis between any of the currently proposed reforms and Netanyahu's so, uh, 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 trial. So I'm I sorry, you one, don't think the that the coalition yeah. wants control over appointing judges because Netanyahu wants to appoint his own, the judges that will sit on his appeal in the Supreme Court no. and or send a message to the judges sitting now on the district court uh, that no, are sitting I, in, on his trial not. right now? Th- this is what his opponents claim, I'll, right? I'll be honest. I, no, no, absolutely. And I, I think the answer is no. And this also relates to another point, which I think that this isn't Netanyahu's reform. I think if it was up to Netanyahu, this legal reform probably would never have come to to mm-hmm. uh, to fruition. This is, and, and I know, and I, Jonathan's making a face. I've I've heard you guys use. It's a different face. Right, right, right it's a different face. <laughs> it's a different it's one a different from the There's a whole before. myriad of faces. This is, this is it's an eyebrows right. raised. And, I think and kind of really. I think this face? is worth giving one second to because yep. so many on so many foreign platforms, uh, English speaking platforms, uh, you know, either foreign foreign platforms looking into Israel or commentators looking abroad, it's often called sort of Netanyahu's uh, legal reform. And that's always been surprising and jarring to me because mm-hmm. Netanyahu has consistently avoided any kind of friction with the legal system. And I have no doubt whatsoever, I, I, I can't speak for him, I don't know him personally, I have no doubt whatsoever that if it was truly up to him, he would have avoided this entire thing. And this is to say, and this is, and this is I think, a, a critical point, in Israel, very few people see this as Netanyahu's judicial reform. They see it as maybe the Likud's judicial reform. They see it as Simcha Rotman's and Yariv Levine's, the justice minister and the head of the constitutional committee, a judicial reform. And far more importantly, this is, and I think this is something that a lot of people also don't recognize, and I think when, when saying Netanyahu's reform, this really it, it sort of misses the point. This is a groundswell, mm-hmm. a public opinion of deeply held resentment throughout the Israeli electorate towards many of the judicial systems and many of the mechanisms that are put in place by the judiciary, by the judiciary over the past 30 or 40 years. This is, these are... So what, sorry, why are the polls so against it though? It's like 60 plus, majorities, 60% plus are against these reforms. I don't think that's true. And I don't think you can run a, a, a country according to polls. You have some elements of the reform that have high support, like, by the way, I should say to you, like changing the, the uh, uh, Judicial Selections uh, uh, mm-hmm. Committee uh, or, or doing away with, with the reasonableness. There are other ones which have a, a lower uh, support, meaning every poll says something a little bit different and every poll has different sort of this distinction between different elements of the reform. But I, I don't think that's true in the sense that elections is where these things are ultimately decided. Mm-hmm. And in the last elections, and frankly, for the past 10 years, this has been a vigorous, ongoing debate in Israeli society. It's been going on for the past 30 years, but certainly in the last 10 years, it's taken a much more significant place in, in Israeli public discourse. And in the last election cycle, it was squarely on the table. I mean, mm-hmm. almost every single piece of the legislative agenda here has been on the uh, you know the religious Zionism party's platform. Uh, Yariv Levin was slated from the get-go, from the first moment, to be uh, Minister of Justice, and everybody knew exactly what that meant. And I think the, big, the best example for this is what the left were saying about the right during this election's campaign. The, the, you know, uh, uh, Benny Gantz and Yair Lapid were running on a platform saying, we will save Israeli democracy. The right is going to destroy the Israeli Supreme, the, the Israeli judiciary, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it was clear to everybody exactly what, what, what this was about, and the elections went that way. And mm-hmm. you know what? If they're wrong, and if the public is overwhelmingly against this reform, then 
in the next election cycle, they will pay the price and there will be a new government in the system which will revert everything right back to the way it was. And so we can be calm about it. But I don't think that's the case. And I don't think that's the case for the demonstrations. We've had demonstrations against BB and the right wing government mm-hmm. for 14 years now. Yeah. I remember, you know, I'm, I'm young, but I'm also old enough to remember since 2009. It's always been something. It's always been, you know, not an issue of left and right. It's never been against BB or the right. It's always been because of some pressing issue, which is extremely important. Uh, Israelis are used to this. And I don't think it, it, and it has consistently turned out that it did not reflect broader Israeli public sentiment. Yeah. Well, I, I would yesterday. argue this is different, but but I, I agree with you that there are large parts of the Israeli society that have resentment, hold resentment uh, towards the Supreme Court. Um, we must end, but I think this was a fascinating conversation. It was really, really interesting to hear your point of view, uh, Yonatan, and really appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you very much. Thank you, Yonatan, uh, Jonathan. Thank you, Yonatan. So very interesting from Jonathan Green. Obviously, as people heard, I don't agree with uh, all of it or I much of it. Or I really didn't notice. It was very understated. Any of it. Um, <laughs> but he is thoughtful and he is, you know, anchored in sort of legal thinking and theory. And it was very interesting to hear that case made by someone who believes in it. Yeah, there is an ideology. We talked a lot about the groups that support this overhaul. And and we talked about the the Haredim that don't agree with a lot of liberal decisions made by the court and are looking at the exemption law that they want to instate in Israel. We talked about the sellers that don't agree with the Supreme Court. And we talked about the supporters of Netanyahu who think that the whole judicial system needs to be weakened. But I think what's interesting about Yonatan is he comes from this group of ideologues who really believes of, you know, we argued about this and, and talked about it, but of rebalance, right? Of saying the court needs to be less powerful, the legislator needs to be more powerful. And, and again, I think it was a really, really interesting conversation. The thing from their point of view is they needed to do this at a time when the prime minister in question was not on trial. (laughs) Then people could assess it in a kind of abstract theoretical constitutional way. When it's being driven by someone who has a kind of, let's put it as gently as we can, who has skin in the game, it's just a bit difficult to separate them. And he heroically tried to make it seem as if this is purely a theoretical uh, or sort of, uh, you know, intellectual reformist project, but obviously people uh, will see it slightly differently. So we did promise two um, major interviewees, two major stories, and we like to uh, keep good on our promises. So our next conversation is going to be focused on the story of Itamar Ben-Gvir. We've, we've obviously talked about this a lot, but we now want to uh, talk with a very talented journalist who has written a lengthy profile piece and a really fascinating one for The New Yorker about this linchpin of Netanyahu's government. Ruth Margalit is an Israeli journalist. Uh, her latest piece is Itamar Ben-Gvir, Israel's Minister of Chaos, published this week in The New Yorker. Her work also appears in the New York Times Magazine, the New York Review of Books, Columbia Journalism Review, and many other places. We're told that you began life as uh, on the editorial staff of The New Yorker as a fact checker, and I feel we need to check this fact with you first, Ruth. Is that the case? That is the case. That's right. That's how I started. And I still believe that that's the best school for journalism, is learning how to do fact checking and kind of tearing pieces, you know, from the inside out and learning what works, what doesn't, what needs some backup. And um, Yeah, no, it's a serious business being fact-checked um, by an, an American magazine. Some of us have been through that experience. <laughs> uh, so that is terrifying. And you are uh, the person mm-hmm. doing it. Um, we have been on this podcast and in many other places talking, some would say obsessively over recent weeks, even on this very episode about the judicial reform plan of the Netanyahu government. And I wonder whether in some ways that has meant, particularly internationally, people have taken their eye off the other very striking thing about this government, and that is the presence in key posts of individuals associated really with the ultranationalist far right. And I wonder whether you hope your piece on Ben Gvir in some ways puts the spotlight back on that side of this story? Um, I think I do, but I also think that it's part of the same story. I think that we have a government here that has sort of two pillars of extremism, we can call them. And one is on the sort of judicial or legal side, 
Um, and that's represented by this judicial overhaul, the kind of the hollowing out of the Supreme Court, every all the proposals that are being floated and now being starting to get passed. And the other pillar is the pillar of security. And this is where Benvir comes in because he's now in charge of national security, what used to be interior security, except it was sort of expanded um, for him. And he's now, he doesn't only oversee the police force, but he also oversees, or according to the coalition agreements, he will oversee border patrol units in the West Bank. Um, this is, you know, unprecedented for the minister of, of interior security in Israel to suddenly oversee these, you know, forces in the West Bank. The outgoing defense minister, Benny Gantz, calls this his private army, you know, a kind of militia for Benville. And so when I started reporting on this, this was around the time of the election, and it became clear that Benville would be sort of this story of the election. He had come from kind of the fringes of, of society and in 2019 failed to get into parliament. And suddenly, I think over the time of the sort of in 2021, around the time of the uprising, the riots in, in Israel's mixed um, cities, you see him starting to represent this kind of alternative to the establishment, this figure who sort of is supposed to represent law and order. He ran on this campaign of Meshilut governance, so very strong on kind of personal security and, and all of that. And suddenly he, you know, he, he gains momentum. And according to one estimate, a third of Israeli soldiers voted for him in this election. So he moves from the fringes to the mainstream and he becomes the story of the election. And it's not only him doing that, but in many cases, um, it, you know, in many respects, it's, it's Netanyahu himself who sort of built him and, and orchestrated this alliance of the far right and made them very strong. Um, in fact, they, they, they became the third largest party in, in this Knesset. So as I was reporting on this and on Benvir kind of clearly becoming the story, suddenly the judicial overhaul is announced. And, and it seemed to me to be sort of relate, kind of unrelated on the surface, but also part of, of, of the same story of extremism kind of, you know, becoming, becoming part of this government. Yeah, and, and some would say that the connection, of course, is, you know, definitely Netanyahu's opponents would say that the connection is that he had to uh, form this coalition with these extreme or unruly parties to pass his judicial uh, overhaul plan. I, I wonder, you know, what's in so interesting about this character, and I, I have to say, you know, this is an excellent piece that you wrote, and even I, as an Israeli, who thought I knew everything about Ben Gvir, I think there's some really surprising parts of it, and we'll get to one of the stories that you uncovered. But I wonder when you look at the phenomenon, because there was this question before the elections. The question was, will Itamar Ben Gvir grow up? Right? Will he be that kind of leader? Maybe Naftali Bennett, I'm of course not comparing the two, but Naftali Bennett was this right-wing, you know, uh, even at times juvenile politician who would always attack Netanyahu from the right and suddenly became a prime minister. And he, and he said it clearly. He said, I left behind everything that I once was. And maybe there was this, I don't know if expectation, but you kind of were waiting to see whether Ben Gvir would actually grow up. It doesn't, obviously this, this government is two months old. It doesn't appear that he has. He kind of stayed the same, the same person. Right. And I think he, he likes to present himself as becoming more moderate. That is certainly part of his story. Um, and when I, when I wrote this profile, I, you know, when you get to do these profiles, you sort of um, get to take an overview of someone's life. And I kind of drew on three stages, sort of three broad stages of his life. And the first is as this kind of agitator for the Kach movement, you know, um, the late party of, of Rabbi Meir Kahana, very, you know, racist, virulent. I mean, th this party had been outlawed by, by the Israeli parliament. And yet Ben Gvir kind of grows up it, within this movement um, in Jerusalem and the suburbs outside of Jerusalem. He, he becomes a fixture at the yeshiva that was founded by Rabbi Kahana and sort of orchestrates this um, network of kind of teenagers doing vandalism, doing spray painting, you know, kind of um, provocations within in the area of Jerusalem and Hebron and the Arab neighborhoods um, there. And then, so this is, let's say, the first stage is this kind of agitator. And then the mm -hmm. second stage begins, let's say, around 2012, when he becomes a lawyer and he starts representing 
um, Jewish settlers, Jewish extremists. Um, and he, so, so he sort of stays in the realm of extremism, but once removed now, right? So he's no longer in the inner circle of extremism, but takes this kind of observer perspective. And, and that's when he learns, according to the people I spoke to, that's when he kind of learns how to work the system. So his mentors on the far right, uh, Michael Ben-Ari, Baruch Marzel, these figures from the Kach movement, they keep getting barred from parliament. You know, they don't know how to do this. And he, or, or they don't want to do this, right? They don't want to kind of toe the line. And he learns how to stay extremist and yet just stay within the bounds of what's permissible. And he finally, you know, he, he is allowed to run for parliament, unlike them. So that's when he starts kind of playing with this sort of moderate persona. And he says that he grew up, that he's no longer the person he was. He even says, you know, Kahana was my idol. I'm no longer there. And yet when you pin him down on what exactly is different, it's very hard to tell. It seems to be sort of semantics, right? So instead of saying, death to the Arabs, he's now talking about death to the terrorists, right? But you start asking who are the terrorists and it's, you know, people who vote for Arab parties, leftists, Haaretz newspaper, he calls it the Hamas, um, I mean, the Shofar for Hamas, mm-hmm. right? So, so mm-hmm. it still seems to be pretty much the same ideology. And then the third stage would be him as a politician, so trying to present himself as even more kind of within the mainstream. And in many ways, he has succeeded, right? So a lot of people who don't consider themselves Kahanists, who are not even necessarily religious or even observant, but have this kind of nationalistic tendency, they vote for him. Um, so in many ways, he's managed to do that. And, and Netanyahu, who in 2021 said that he will never name Ben Gvir a minister in his government has. He says that he's more moderate now, but in, but, and, and actually people I spoke to, some of them say, well, he does speak differently. And they kind of point out the statements that he makes that are slightly different or more nuanced than they used to be. But even he himself sort of says that this is in order to stay within the system. Yeah. Um, and when you look at other politicians from Jewish power, um, so, I mean, the, the first name that comes to mind is Almog Cohen. He's number three. You know, this, this is very much still the kind of Kahanist sentiment. Um, just recently, right? Was it uh, last night or two, two, um, two days ago at Knesset where Almog Cohen started making these kind of animal noises, um, towards the Arab politicians and calling them sort of speaking to them in Arabic. So, so it, it still seems to be very much the kind of um, the Kahanist mindset, let's say. I want to later on perhaps get into this question of who is the real Ben Gvir. But just, just for now, I think we uh, should bring to people hearing this some of the jaw-dropping details in your piece. You know, the, the, in, there are some that add to what we already know about his criminal past. And we know quite a lot about that. And you have an official in there saying that when they had to print out the list of his convictions, it was so long they had to change the ink on the printer, which is just a fantastic detail. But there was one story in particular involving the United Nations of you know headquarters or building in Israel and or in Jerusalem, and a 14-year-old, which which I know has made some news in Israel. Just for people who haven't yet got to your piece, just tell us what this episode was. Sure. Um, so I'll just a, a brief um, explainer on who this person is. So this person, this 14-year-old, his name is Gilad Sadeh, but he grew up as Gilad Polak. And Polak, for people who know something about the Kach movement, Tiran Polak was uh, Kahana's right-hand man. And Gilad grew up, Gilad, um, Tiran Polak was his father. He thought he was his father. That's a separate story. Um, he grew up in that circle and, and knew Ben Gvir ever since he was a child. So he grew up with Ben Gvir in those circles. And very soon when he became, you know, kind of growing up as a teenager, Ben Gvir would take him, Gilad Sadeh says that Ben Gvir took him and other teenagers on these kind of jaunts around Jerusalem spray painting, doing acts of vandalism. And Ben Gvir always sort of kept himself removed from that. So he would sort of tell them what to do, Sadeh says. 
and pay them for it around sort of $60, $70 a night. And they did it, you know, partly because they admired him. They wanted to get paid. They, they all came from kind of these broken homes. So it made sense. And he provided them this sort of framework in, in a sense. Um, instead of going to school. And this incident you're, to- you're talking about, um, so Gilad Sadeh tells me that in 2001, this is around the time of the Second Intifada, um, there was some issue with Hez- um, Hezbollah. So Hezbollah um, kidnapped three Israeli soldiers, they held them captive, and they released some kind of videotape to the United Nations. The United Nations reviewed the footage, but refused to allow all of the footage into Israeli hands. There was some question about this video and and what was given to Israel and what wasn't. And many people on the far right and and actually in in Israeli sort of right wing circles generally were upset with this. They, They thought the UN had handled it, had mishandled it. And, you know, among them was this was the Kach movement in Jerusalem and Ben Gvir um, during that summer when this happens, apparently he tells Gilad Sadeh, or so Gilad tells me, that Ben Gvir um, drove him to the UN military base in East Jerusalem. So this is where the refugee agency UNRWA is housed and gives him a wire cutter, shows him where to break into the fence and sort of waits for Gilad outside while Gilad climbs the fence, breaks in, punctures every tire of every car he can find, spray paints UN out, and Kahana was right, I believe, and escapes the UN base, and Ben Gvir is outside waiting for him in his car. So this is the first time this has been reported. You know, obviously it's Gilad's word against Ben Gvir, who says this has never happened, and I should say that Ben Gvir denies the allegations. But we do also know from officials that this is kind of very much in line with other acts that, that Ben Gvir did at that time and that other Kahanists did. So one is this employment of minors to do the dirty work because apparently, you know, they knew that for Shinbet officials to interview minors and interrogate them, it's much more complicated than just interrogating anyone else. There are these rules. And also, the, the kind of um, fixation with the UN, and this kind of remains a, a fixture in Ben Gvir's life, this fixation with the UN and with kind of everything it supposedly stands for. So all of this kind of tracks with his record. And, and yeah, and, and I think this, you know, this is now one of the uh, Yeshatid lawmakers brought this to the Knesset the other day. She mentioned my piece and she mentioned, she mentioned this incident. And, you know, Benvir, so far, he, except for denying this, um, I mean, this is really an international diplomatic incident. You know, part of what he did, as as you reported, right, is to to basically take a minor and send him to vandalize a UN building. You know, I, I wonder, as you, you noted, he had huge power and this election, the religious Zionism party, was since broke off uh, from each other because Ben Gvir and Smotrich have no love lost between them, obviously. You mentioned that as well. But, I mean, he's extremely powerful. Th- there's, a, I guess, a prevailing scenario in political circles that, that the Ben Gvir phenomenon would be deflated, right? That something will happen to make him lose power. Any sort of scenario that says Ben Gvir clamps down on on prisoners and Palestinian prisoners, terrorists in Israeli prisons, then a, a flare-up uh, breaks out, Netanyahu has to give concessions to Hamas, and Ben Gvir leaves the government because Netanyahu is weak on terror. This is just one theory, right? There are hundreds. Do, do you think that is what will happen with the Ben Gvir phenomenon, that it, it can only now decrease instead of increase in power? I think he does represent the weakest link in the government in the sense that this interior security, what's now being branded as the national security portfolio, has always been regarded as a kind of graveyard for ministers. The typical saying is that you just, you can't do right. So whenever there's terrorism, you know, you, you get blamed. The Israeli police force is kind of notoriously underfunded and sort of dysfunctional in many ways. So it's a difficult for portfolio anyway. And you can see a scenario. I mean, he definitely does seem frustrated these days. And you can see him sort of inching to do something because he's not getting credit that he thinks he deserves because he's sort of, um, he's sidelined in many ways. And now with the judicial overhaul, he's even more sidelined. 
Um, so you can see, I can see him certainly sort of being the first to maybe drop out of the coalition or, or kind of make a move. Right. But on the other hand, that doesn't mean that his power decreases. I actually don't know about that. Um, it could be that this is sort of, um, kind of floating sands, right? And, and that, that his, his electorate may, may dissipate. But on the other hand, so you, you mentioned the name Smotrich, right? So this is the other far right politician and, and they were brought in together by this alliance. Smotrich, um, in many ways, you know, he's smart. He has managed to become the kind of heir to Naftali Bennett in many ways uh, for this national religious camp. But he also has a, a ceiling, right? So if you're if you're secular, you're not voting religious Zionism. Right. Ben Gvir doesn't have that ceiling. He has managed to somehow sort of appeal to different sectors in Israel. And it could be that it's fading. It could be that they all came together after the riots of 2021, this issue of Meshilut, that it all kind of came together, at, you know, sort of perfectly for him, um, the perfect storm in this election. But it could also be that, that that this is an electorate that sort of stays or that he that he manages to do this again of kind of bringing these different sectors together. So I can see him kind of blowing things up in, in parliament, but I'm not sure that that decreases his power, actually. Interesting. Yeah, you uh, you mentioned Smotrich. You have this very interesting line in the in the piece that maybe Smotrich is, in some ways, the more serious figure. He's a he's a megalomaniac, while Itamar Ben Gvir is a pyromaniac, which I thought was a fascinating distinction. Well, the question I want to ask you about who is the real one is: you raise this interesting possibility that two or three fairly credible, serious people say, which is, was he at some point, and and if so, when did it stop? An agent of the Shin Bet, Israel's internal security uh, intelligence agency, um, the notion that perhaps he was in there to watch the far right from an early start. And that is an, a fascinating idea if if that is the case. And then at what point does he, as it were, go rogue? Or do, his, or do some people on the far right doubt him even now and think he maybe isn't in earnest, he's not sincere, and that he's really, you know, as it were, as they would see it, working for the other side as a creature of the deep state. So I think we should say, first of all, that he denies any involvement with Shimbet and has always denied these allegations whenever they started surfacing. And they had started surfacing in the, as, as far as I can tell, in the early 2000s. So this is around 20 years that these rumors are kind of floating um, around him. And he denies them. You can imagine a scenario in which, in other words, you can collaborate with a Shin Bet and not be, so, so there was this, um, this figure in the far right circles of Ishai Raviv, right? That the Shin Bet, sort of a, an agent of theirs was planted within the far right circles. And this is around the time of Rabin's murder, um, the prime minister. And, and he was really kind of a Shin Bet operative, right? An asset. There are other scenarios, people, you know, kind of security officials told me where, you know, he's not necessarily planted by the Shin Bet, but you can see someone who, who is of those circles. He's already in the far right circles and kind of doing extremist work and, and doing, you know, acts, the, the, the sort of borderline criminal. And then the Shin Bet using him, right? So, so kind of, calling him for for a sort of interrogation slash conversation and and having him work for them occasionally sporadically we don't know right kind of giving them information once in a while about I don't, I don't know who but you can see a scenario in which he's both of the far right and and that is authentic to him and possibly um, collaborating with Ashim Bet. I'm not saying that about Ben Gvir himself. We don't, we don't have official confirmation of that, but I'm saying, you know, it, it, that's, that's how the Shin Bet operates in the, the kind of the Jewish far right. Mm-hmm. Um, and those rumors have plagued him for, for a long time. And not only have they plagued him in those circles, but, um, the former defense minister, Avigdor Lieberman, brought it up as the possibility in a radio interview. The wife of former Prime Minister Naftali Bennett brought it up in her a kind of separate statement of defense that she gave. She had claimed that activists from Jewish power, from Otsma Yehudit, Ben Gvir's party, broke into her home. 
Ben Gvir sued her, then sued her for libel. And in that statement of defense having to do with that case, she brought up the notion that he could be, that, that he was a Shinbet um, informant. So, and, and then she retracted it, I should say, she retracted it, she apologized. But, but those, you know, in other words, these rumors not only come from kind of the ground, you know, on the ground level, but they also come from officials, former officials. Um, so, so that, and, and if, if that were the case, then it certainly, it adds another layer to who he is. What's interesting, I was told, you know, in the United States, if you um, say that someone, you kind of blame someone or accuse someone of collaborating with law enforcement, that can never be libelous, right? Because because collaborating, cooperating with law enforcement is always a good thing. <laughs> but in Israeli law, actually, you know, he sometimes he wins these lawsuits because um, of what's seen as kind of a damage to his reputation, because, you know, cooperating with law enforcement in, in these far-right circles is seen as very damaging. Ruth Margalit, thanks so much. The piece uh, is in the latest edition of The New Yorker. There is so much in there that we couldn't even get to, including the extraordinary figure. I have to say, I didn't know anything about Mrs. Ben Gavir. Mm -hmm. People will have to go, will have to, who makes her husband look like a moderate. Um, (laughs) I mean, it's, um, it's a really uh, eye-opening piece um, and and, and really worth seeking out. But thanks so much for, for being with us on Unholy. Thank you. It was my pleasure. So I learned a lot from Ruth's piece, which is quite remarkable when you think of the fact that I'm Israeli and that uh, Itamal Bengvil is part of the public uh, sphere for the past 25 uh, years. It really is a fascinating piece. It really is. And yeah, I'm just making a very superficial observation here. But I would say that most, you know, English speaking journalists in the English speaking world as an aspiration think that the pinnacle is to write for the New Yorker, what, you know, the most highly regarded uh, weekly publication in the language. And there is somebody who is uh, Israeli born for whom English is a second language performing on that highest of uh, high wires. It's almost, your need like somebody broadcasting to once a week in a second language. I can't think of anybody who manages to do that, not looking at anyone in particular, Yonit. So, yes, massive applauds to Ruth Margulit for that piece and for what she does at The New Yorker. Now, mm. we have awards to hand out. I think, has it fallen to you yet again? to give the <laughs> I had a brief hiatus from that last week with a great men's did, story but, but let's let, let's you know let's let our traditional roles take over and I will do let's the, revert to time. <laughs> I will do the chutzpah I think um, we haven't mentioned them in a while Israeli politicians um, who reacted this week to the words um, of uh, the U.S. ambassador in Israel, Tom Nides, who was interviewed on uh, David Axelrod's podcast. David Axelrod, also a friend of our pod who came on here uh, in the past. So uh, what Tom Nides said essentially was that we asked that the Israeli government uh, push the brakes uh, vis-a-vis the uh, judicial overhaul. You had two responses that I would want to mention, one of them being Amichai Shikli, the minister, I believe, of diaspora affairs. It's hard to keep track in this government. And he uh, said that the U.S. should mind its own business. I wonder if he (laughs) thinks the same about, I don't know, issues like military aid or joint operations in Iran, etc. But that is what he said. And of course, Bezalel Smotrich, being the finance minister, said, I can reassure the ambassador that we will take parts of our we're taking parts of the judicial overhaul from inspired from the American judiciary. Those are the responses of these two Israeli politicians to the words of the American ambassador. Obviously, you know, it's very, very clear that the Biden administration is quite concerned about this uh, reform. It's being said quite clearly by the president himself, by the secretary of state, by the ambassador. um, But this was the response of the Israeli politicians. Yeah, no, chutzpah from Chikli to say, we will take your, what is it, $38 billion over a decade-long period. It's not 38 anymore. It's been a few years. So it's less than 38, I'm just saying. Okay, because but billions of dollars in aid will take, but meanwhile, butt out. (laughs) We want your money, but not your opinions. Um, So yes, worthy winners for chutzpah. Our mensch of the week will be unsurprising, because as this episode drops, it is one year to the day since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We got a nomination during the year that somebody said this person should be the mensch of the year. It was Raymond Simonson. I am surprised you don't remember who it was. I do remember, (laughs) um, but he's had enough name checks, but okay. Um, 
Listener Raymond Simonson, longtime friend of the podcast, said, Mench of the year, surely. But certainly this week, as we reflect on the anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky, for obviously heroically defending his own people, but really defending a kind of international idea of freedom from aggression, and I would say a lasting new model of Jewish leadership. And people have talked about him as a kind of latter-day Maccabee. But there is something that lasting about what he's doing, the way he embodies his own nation, the way he manages to find new ways, fresh ways to communicate this struggle and the inspiration he has been around the world to to everyone who's heard him. So Volodymyr Zelensky mentioned the week as, as Ukraine marks this somber anniversary and people think about the year ahead. Okay, we are winding up our uh, special episode with two interviewees. I think it's nice. I think it's nice to do on occasion. We don't have to talk to each other. We just have to talk to other people. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> it's four Jews on the news um, this week, isn't it? But I'm not suggesting a rebrand. If you have enjoyed Unholy, remember, write re- uh, a review, rate. You can be on our Facebook page, Unholy Podcast, the same on Instagram. Uh, we're getting more and more responses there, and it's all very, very welcome. As you've heard from today, we do pick up on what you are saying there, respond and adapt and change. So we, it's worth doing. We really do. And we want to thank Gaia Glazer, Omer Primat, Rom Atik, and Yair Bashan, and say a very happy birthday to our special birthday boy, Jonathan Friedland. You have a good birthday, kid. We shall meet next week. I thought I'd got away with it, but I didn't, <laughs> did I? Okay. It's well, Jews you're, here. You're, it's you're, Jews. We don't, you don't get away with occasions. So I'll see you one year older next week. I look forward to it. And- This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint. You deserve the best security.